because of the way that commodities trade, they trade on future pricings. And so the price today of a barrel of oil is not what that oil company is actually paying for that barrel of oil. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, Johnny, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Matt. Great to be here. Absolutely. Well, you know we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Uh, classic cookie dough. Just can't can't beat it. Now, you are in Salt Lake, if I remember, correct? Yes. If we are out that way, where is the best ice cream we can go get? Oh, man, that's a good question. Uh, so we have a local brand. Well, and I'm, I'm sure it's, it's a national brand, but it's, it's from here called far ice cream, F A R R. So if you can go directly to their creamery, uh, one of the best, I also, um, well, you asked about Salt Lake. That's going to be my best answer for Salt Lake. Then is going to be the far creamery. I have not heard of far. So, uh, next time I come out your way, we actually met in Salt Lake. So next time I come out that way, I'll be sure to check it out. Absolutely. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Yeah, so uh, my primary focus uh, is Katani Capital Group, which is at this point, when I first started, I thought it was just going to be real estate, private equity. But, you know, as we'll get into, I've added some uh, outside assets that are not real estate related, structured like real estate, but uh, not real estate related. So we are officially private equity and focus solely on raising capital for established operators in real estate and, and various other assets. Gotcha. Well, take us back though. Where did your real estate journey begin? Yeah. So it actually began, um, somewhat, you know, uh, differently. I actually started in the public sector. I was a licensed stockbroker. I had my series seven and 63, uh, worked my way up and was working with uh, high income or well I should say high net worth individuals, Basically where I was, we deemed that as 5 million in assets or more with our institution. My ultimate goal there was, you know, obviously give them, you know, white glove service, make sure they're happy with everything. But ultimately, you know, it was also to figure out what their outside portfolios were like and if we could ultimately get them to consolidate their assets, you know, with us. And so obviously that leads to conversations about outside assets. And I noticed a trend that all of them had real estate in some capacity, even to the point where, because you could have uh, self-directed IRAs and 401ks, we were even doing the paperwork to, you know, hold the asset in their self-directed uh, retirement account, you know, with our institution. And it got me realizing like, okay, there's something to this here, right? If all of these people have real estate and, you know, um, real assets, then there, you know, I've got to look into it. So that led to books and podcasts, um, rich dad, poor dad, uh, which I'm sure many people have read, if not highly recommend. Uh, and so ultimately it led to me hating the corporate world, right? I'm sure a lot of your listeners can relate to that. Got very stagnant and you know, those big corporations, you just, you don't move. Right. And so because of living in salt lake we had a ton of tech startups uh popping up here and you know the silicon slopes as it's now been been named and 
because of that, I left and, and tried my hand in the, the tech startup world and uh, got laid off because of COVID. So the universe kind of just, you know, kind of gently nudged me off the edge and was like, you know, hey, listen, when your severance is up, it's time for you to really look into this real estate thing. You know, I'd been exploring it, gosh, probably five years at that point. And so I'd done some investments. I tried my hand in wholesaling and fix and flip, and it was just too transactional. So ultimately it led me to find a group here that was buying apartments in uh, Oklahoma City and Columbus, Ohio. Uh, added what value I could, which was, you know, between the public sector and, and, you know, speaking with actual investors was essentially helping them build their investor relations department. A lot of their uh, CRM stuff, um, you know, all the backend automations, all of that. And we scaled from 70 units when I joined to 570 units in less than a year. Wow. And immediately I was hooked. And so ultimately that led me to realizing that my skill set is best fit as a capital raiser specifically. Ultimately, uh, I joined Raise Masters, was kind of one of the original 100 or so uh, at Raise Masters. I'm still a member today. And uh, they pushed me to ultimately part ways with that group because the long-term uh, visions just weren't aligning. Still in contact with them, they're doing great things. Uh, so ultimately started Katani Capital Group and uh, began raising uh, from, from my own deals. Gotcha. Well, I want to get into kind of what you're doing over at your uh, capital group. But before we get there, um, you mentioned working with higher net worth individuals, ultra high net worth individuals, and you mentioned them holding assets in their self-directed IRA. That's a strategy that maybe people have heard about, but don't know a ton about. Can you just give us the 101 and a refresher on what is a self-directed IRA and how do wealthy people use it to kind of hold assets? Yeah, great question. So the biggest way that self-directed IRAs are created are typically from a uh, 401k, right? So if you've had multiple jobs, right, and you, and you start a 401k, a lot of times those 401ks, they, they just sit there and whatever selection, right? I think you only typically only get three selections, right? Kind of your, your like uh, low risk, medium risk, and then, you know, extremely speculative and, and who knows what they're, what any of those are actually being invested in. I mean, you have to do some serious digging to get there, but ultimately, you know, it will just stay in that selection and, and continue to kind of ebb and flow with whatever investments are in there. And, and a lot of times it's, it's still growing, right? I mean, aside from the current cycle we're in, you know, there, there's still some growth. And so a lot of people are typically surprised when, you know, all of a sudden they, you know, get a letter in the mail or an email finally gets to them and they've got 50, hundred K sitting in some, some 401k. And so, uh, you know, you're, you're not combining that with your current 401k, your current employers. So typically, what you're advised to do, and, and I'm not an advisor CPA, so I'll preface with that, but typically what you're going to do, take that IR, that 401k and you're going to roll it into an IRA, not a taxable event, perfectly legal, IRS deems it as, you know, totally okay, green light. And so from there, you're now in control of, you know, let's for easy math, let's say 100k, right? You're now in control of what that is invested in. And at a lot of these uh, self-directed custodial uh, places, they might have advisors, you know, and, and, and presenting with opportunities, but the good ones will have 
a lot of strategic partnerships with groups like mine, for instance, where you can get access to these private investment opportunities. And, you know, as your listeners, I'm sure are familiar. And if they've listened, you know, the private world, someone who's coming from the public world, the private world is where wealth is really created and maintained and, and grows. And so you're actually able to take your self-directed IRA and, you know, work with your custodian and you can go out and you can invest, invest in these private syndications, just like you would with your, you know, taxable money, uh, income that you, that you make, uh, you have the exact same opportunities and there's some nuances, which we won't get into, but ultimately, you know, you're presented with those, of course, as a high income earner, a lot of times you're looking for that kind of tax deduction and tax break that comes with the, the private investments, obviously, because it's already a tax sheltered account, typically not presented with those opportunities, but the growth, the cash flow, all of those things, you know, and growing your retirement, you can do with all of these, uh, uh, private opportunities. That's right. And, um, a couple of comments I'll make there is when we, we come across folks who want to get involved in real estate and they say, well, I just don't have any money to do that. And my first question is, well, do you have a 401k or an IRA? And typically the answer is yes. And I'm like, well, you can actually use that to invest in other things besides the stock market or your fidelity plan that your company gives you. And most people don't know that. So that's one thing. The second thing is you're right. There's, there's no tax advantages to holding it in a tax deferred account or a tax sheltered account already. So where we see a lot of our investors invest with their self-directed IRA is consistent mortgage notes or consistent debt because you're going to get an 8 to 10% return every single year. That's interest payments. It's not equity payments. So there's no uh, depreciation or anything like that on it. But that's higher than the quote unquote average 7% that you're going to see in the stock market. So would you rather be on a roller coaster ride for the next 30 years in your 401k where you might average 7% or a typical uh, slow and steady 8 to 10% every single year just growing steady eddy like? Absolutely. Yep, that's a perfect example. Also development is another one that I've had conversation with, right? Where you don't need the cash flow in that account and so you just want it to grow and you know, obviously you know, you want to have a good operator and, and, you know, proven track record and all of that. But another really awesome opportunity there as well, because, you know, in an account like that, you're just going to set it and leave it. And so a development is, is that exact thing, right? Like you're not going to see a return for probably three to five years anyway. So you just let it go, let them do their thing. And, uh, you know, you get that, that, uh, nice equity multiple, uh, at the end. Yeah. Have you heard of uh, Peter Thiel's um, Roth IRA story? Yeah, his, his multi-billion dollar IRA, it, yeah. which is now a Roth IRA. And so, yeah. And, and so if, you're, if your listeners aren't familiar with the difference between uh, Roth and, and traditional, traditional, any contributions are considered um, basically tax-free and potentially able to actually deduct those contributions. I think it's 6,500 if you're below 59 and a half is annual. And so ultimately what happens is once you go and take your distributions, um, you know, after 59 and a half, and ultimately when you get to your required age of having to take them, it's typically going to be taxed as ordinary income. Whereas with the Roth, the money that you contribute is considered post-tax. 
And so when you go and take your distributions, same ages, everything, required minimum distribution age, there's no tax. The caveat there is there is a, uh, a salary or income threshold. So once you make too much money, you can no longer contribute to a Roth. However, because the IRS and is what it is and you know, you've got Congress who sets these laws essentially, you have a back door that you can essentially take your traditional IRA and backdoor it into a Roth, still perfectly legal, green light. And uh, so ultimately that's what Peter Thiel did. And it's not like, yeah. I think over a billion dollars and he'll just won't have to well, ever pay taxes on it. So he, he had a venture investment and I'm not sure if it was Facebook or one of his other venture investments where he was granted stock warrants, backdoored them into a Roth and those warrants, which essentially he got for pennies, uh, turned out to be one of the big VC uh, mega winners uh, of the century. It was? Okay. And it turned into like $2 billion. <laughs> so now he's sitting on $2 billion of tax-free income in his Roth. And I know I talked to the people who are upset with that and it's like, well, here's just another billionaire avoiding the tax system. And I'm like, he played by the rules. I mean, all of it's legal. That It's not like this he did anything illegal. This is my big illegal. complaint with people who they... And, you know, and it's just a lack of education, right? Because a lot of this educational stuff is not common knowledge. You're not seeing that, right? What are you seeing? You're seeing your Wall Street advertisements, right? JP Morgan and, and Fidelity and, and look at our mutual funds and, and, you know, all of those things. But you're not learning this information. And the irony is that, like, they're not loopholes. They're incentives, like it's there, it's written in the code. If I'm allowed to do it, it's not like, it's not some guy in, you know, the Bahamas, like, you know, like moving my money into seven different locations and, you know, they'll never figure out who actually owns it. It's like, no, it's literally the IRS says you can do this. So, right. you know, we got to change about? our perspective on that and just play the game. It's the rules are written there for you. That's right. That's right. So you mentioned earlier that you started off really focused on real estate and kind of grew that portfolio and then shifted more towards a private equity and, and um, looking out other asset classes outside of real estate, but structured in a similar way. Talk to us a little bit about that. What does that look like? Yeah. So uh, ultimately, you know, I've got high income earners, right? Like a lot of your listeners, uh, specifically in the tech industry, you know, enterprise uh, sales, and so it's a couple things. One is their goals are to ultimately replace their income over the next, uh, you know, 10 to 20 years in terms of, you know, actually becoming financially free and, and have all of their expenses covered from cash flow. And because of the market cycle that we're in in real estate, specifically multifamily, it's all but dried up, right? you're seeing lots of operators have had to withhold distributions and, and not that things are going wrong. It's just kind of a precautionary thing. And you're seeing, you know, new deals now, not really having any cash flow, right? You're kind of seeing like 6% pref, right? Which is what's made it challenging to raise capital is, you know, you can go out and get a treasury. And I think the two years dropped a little bit, but for a while there was like five and a half percent. So you're like, yeah. okay, well I could go invest in a treasury, which there's no guarantees. But when you take the series seven, they're like, listen, there's no guarantees, but you're investing in the U S government, which is yet to ever default. And it's, you know, 300 years of existence. So pretty solid track record there. So ultimately what I'm getting at is a lot of investors have, 
you know, put their money there, which makes perfect sense. And so in order to keep my investors investing with me, I had to go out and find an asset that, you know, can really check the boxes of, okay, recession resistance, right? Just like we preach with real estate, uh, you know, potential for cash flow, equity upside, and then uh, capital preservation. And so ultimately, I found energy and more specifically, uh, well, and uh, tax benefit as well uh, is on that list. And so ultimately, I found oil and gas and specifically investing directly in the drilling of oil and gas. And what's cool about this opportunity is that it's set up like a real estate fund, in a sense, where when you invest in a fund, you know, uh, like a big fund, there's multiple assets in that fund, right? Where, you know, you might go out and, and buy, you know, maybe if it's an income fund, right, they're going to go and buy cash flowing assets, right? Cash flowing apartments, you know, to make it easy. And they might go out and the ultimate goal of the fund is to get 10, you know, different apartment complexes in that and, you know, aggregate everything. And then ultimately there's, you know, return uh, for the investors in that fund. This is the exact same concept, except typically when you would invest in oil and gas, you would do like, they would do like one to maybe three wells. And it's like, well, hopefully one of these wells is what they call a gusher. And for the next 20 years, you know, you're, you know, I mean, you're, you're enjoying a, a nice return, but there's also the potential that none of them are. So what King Operating is doing is they're going out and, you know, they've got tens of thousands of contiguous acres, meaning it's all together. And they're going out and doing exploratory drilling. And essentially high level, what exploratory drilling is, is you're using science, geology, all of the tests that the big institutional grade, your Chevrons, you know, um, Shell, all of them use to find uh, these hydrocarbons. But it's in an area that doesn't have the pipelines and all of the infrastructure yet. So essentially what they're trying to do is just like in a value add multifamily or like spec building is they're trying to prove that it's worth bringing the infrastructure out there and essentially connecting this land to, uh, to the pipeline. So they're drilling anywhere. The goal is ultimately 18 to 21 wells over the next three to five years. So, you know, significantly more, right, than your one to three kind of speculative. It's, you know, very um, scientific and, and proven that the hydrocarbons are there. And then beyond that, they're doing um, uh, horizontal drilling. So essentially, and, and I learned this from all my vetting and, and, and understanding it before I brought it to my investors. But, you know, we all think of like oil drilling, like they just land on a lake of oil and you put a straw in it and just suck the lake dry that's actually not the case these hydrocarbons while there are pools of them you typically get to a certain level and then that's where it is and so with vertical drilling you know you, you're one straw into a puddle at a time and you're trying to find these different puddles with horizontal you go down and then out so you imagine like a spider web that once you find the the level that these hydrocarbons are at, you can spread that spider web out and hit all of the pockets and ultimately, you know, produce even more oil. And so over the next three to five years, their goal is, 
is to basically prove that you know it's worth having the infrastructure out there, which will ultimately lead to plan A exit of selling off to a much larger institutional player. Now to bring it full circle into why I went and found this deal is because it checked all those boxes. But the biggest reason is that it turns out if you invest directly in the drilling of oil, right, you can get a uh, direct offset from your W-2 income. So a high income tech salesman, like a lot of your listeners, a lot of my uh, investors can essentially take $100,000 and potentially get anywhere from 75 to 90% of that uh, directly deducted from their active income. Now, there is a caveat. You do start in the year, so in this year, 2023, you do technically start as a general partner, which means technically you are exposed to the risk that all the general partners are exposed to. However, the nice thing about that is, is knock on wood, no land drilling has ever had a claim that has gone past any of the insurance that the operators have, that all of the uh, equipment companies are required to have, and everybody who's involved. So essentially what I'm saying is no investor has ever been exposed and, and been at risk to any of those uh, insurance claims or, or any of the claims that could potentially arise. So you're really mitigating that risk by investing, you know, directly, which is, you know, giving you that incredible W-2 offset. And if you are actually that concerned and, and, and W-2 offset is not your thing, you can start out right on the limited partnership and get that same passive deduction and, and you're not exposed. So it really gives you the best of both worlds, but specifically for the high income earners, it's a really, really incredible opportunity. So a couple of things you mentioned there is um, one, um, when you were talking about horizontal drilling, all I can think about is that scene in There Will Be Blood, where he's like, my milkshake drinks your milkshake. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go YouTube it because it's hilarious. Um, but I kind of understand how far uh, drilling has really come in the past, I don't know, 100 years or something like that. We're not even yes. talking fracking. It's just horizontal drilling. Second, um, you mentioned the uh, tax deduction. So let's talk f for that for a second. Yep. I think some people know, but what I didn't know when I first got involved in real estate is that after you make a certain no level of income, you are not allowed to use passive losses to offset active income. Your Correct. W-2 is active income. Real estate is passive unless you can show that you're a real estate professional, which we've had episodes on that. So I'm not going to talk about that. But essentially, it's impossible to show you're a real estate professional and a full-time professional without asking the IRS to audit you. So what you're mentioning is that the oil investment, oil and gas investment that you are looking at right now and offering allows you to take those 70 to 80% passive loss because you're not really out there drilling. It is a loss and wipe off any tax gain in your W-2. Is that is that correct? Did I get that right? Hey, fellow investors, before we dive into our next segment of the show, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk to you about a fantastic opportunity for you to invest with me. As you know, here at Ice Cream with Investors, I'm passionate about real estate investing and helping you navigate the exciting world of wealth creation through real estate. And that's why for the first time, 
I'm thrilled to tell you about an opportunity for you to invest alongside of me. Over the past three years, I've been investing in multifamily, mobile home parks, car washes. I've even become the bank and lent out money to fellow real estate investors on a short-term basis. And now you can come join me. If you would like to jump on a call and learn more about this opportunity, head to icecreamwithinvestors.com slash invest and find a time for us to connect. And now back to the show. Correct. And again, I'm not a CPA, but have talked to, have consulted actually two independent CPAs and including, you know, their in-house CPA. Um, so I guess three, but two independent CPAs and spoke directly to their in-house CPA. And it's not a very well-known um, incentive in the IRS code, but oil and gas has this incentive where if you get involved directly in the drilling on the general partnership, even though you're not the one out there drilling, you're able to take that income and, or that, that paper loss, right? That deduction that you're going to get and ultimately take it directly from your, your, uh, your W2. So let's talk then about some of the insurance. So the risk here is that you are a general partner for a period of time. Um, so one, I want to ask like, what is that period of time? And then two, you mentioned kind of the insurance and um, I guess I'll just call it umbrella insurance. I don't know what kind of insurance it is. What kind of insurance do the, uh, operators have to protect a general partner in that situation? Yeah, both great questions. So the first one on time is, it's, uh, essentially you'll be moved from the GP to the limited partnership, uh, starting the, the tax year following the opening of the fund. So for those listening, if you invested right now in 2023, uh, essentially January 1 of 2024, you would be moved over and then no longer exposed. Can I, can I ask a question on that real quick yeah. then? What, what's preventing an investor to invest December 15th then? That is a fantastic question. I don't think there's anything. The only thing is the sooner you invest, especially in the, I'll, I'll speak specifically to this opportunity. The sooner you invest, the more you're incentivized. The cost per unit is going to go up and it may already be trending that direction. It's going to go up soon within the next month or so, ultimately to uh, reward those who did invest early, right? Like, it's basically Got like it. if you can get the same unit price on December 15th, they would never be able to raise money till December 15th because so essentially they're rewarding those who invested earlier. And, you know, if you invest later, you're the same amount, right? Let's, you know, the, the minimum is hundred K, you know, essentially the unit price is going, it's 200 K per unit. And I believe it's going to be raised to 220 a unit. And then as far as the insurance goes, the most typical insurance liability is is with those who are drilling, right? So injuries happen. I mean, if you guys have ever seen these roughnecks and what they do, it's absolutely insane what these guys go through. And and ultimately, they are you know paid very handsomely, relatively speaking. Uh, you know, they are high income earners themselves. But you know, I mean, you're talking about just big heavy machinery being thrown around and so that's the biggest one is is really the insurance. And then, um, you know, they're leasing the equipment, which uh, even takes away even more of the exposure because the equipment leasing companies have to have their own insurance as well. So you've almost added one additional layer of protection from the investors 
by leasing the equipment and forcing the leasing company to have, you know, insurance as well. Because, you know, if you get, if there's an injury using their equipment, you know, because of faulty equipment or something along those lines, right, they're going to be liable before, you know, the operating group. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, I didn't know that about the, the equipment piece and then the flipping of a GP to the LP stack within a year or within a tax year. That sounds even better. Yes. Yeah. So, it, it's yeah. Go ahead. So when they, when an investor does this and they flip over to the LP, talk about the returns afterwards. Do we, do they need to hit a home run in terms of a gusher, as you mentioned earlier, or can they find just a little bit of natural gas and energy and, and be able to see returns from there? Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, so if you guys know anything about oil and gas, right, it's a commodity, it ebbs and flows. I mean, take what we've seen at the, the gas pump, right? Uh, I'm not sure if you guys are aware, so I'll be the one to break it to you. The gas pump has nothing to do with a barrel of oil. The gas pump has everything to do with oil companies having the ability to charge you what they charge you. Sorry, but they're mutually exclusive. And uh, not a lot of people like to hear that because they like to think that the barrel of, a barrel of oil going up is why. And certainly that is a factor, but um, they are able to... But because of the way that commodities trade, they trade on future pricings. And so the price today of a barrel of oil is not what that oil company is actually paying for that barrel of oil. So I don't want to get too into the weeds, but, you know. Correct. And I, I would just like to add on, if you noticed in the beginning of the year, oil prices spiked up and then they barely came down like a dollar, a dollar and a quarter. But the price of an oil barrel dropped like $50. It was something like the equation should have worked that they returned not only to the normal price that they were, but even further. But since they had already trained all the consumers that you're going to pay $3 a gallon, there was no incentive for them to bring it down. So glad you brought up that point. Correct. And, you know, and there's a lot of politics involved. Like ultimately, as we get closer to the election next year, gas prices are going to come down. Current administration is going to keep that one in their back pocket. Um, but ultimately, what I'm getting at is, uh, so the return is there is a monthly distribution. It starts 60 days after your investment. It's going to ebb and flow. The first year they're going to, I believe, so 2023, the, the annual, annualized return is probably going to be somewhere around 2 to 3%. So not great. But ultimately, uh, in the years following, starting next year and following that, they're shooting anywhere from about 12 to 18% annualized cash on cash return. Wow. You know, so 12 to $18,000 per hundred invested essentially paid monthly. And then there's a three and a half X equity multiple. And for those of you that invest in real estate or know anything about equity multiples, that is, that's a scary number. And ultimately when you break it down, you realize that where that comes from is actually still very conservative forecasting the current price of oil and natural gas would still give about a three to a 3.2 X equity multiple. We do need both oil and natural gas to come up a little bit, but I believe it's like another $3 and 50 cents as what oil is currently trading on now and about another two fifty uh, for natural gas. So really not these big massive spikes uh, in order to, get that ultimately what you're looking for is you're looking for that what they call barrel of oil barrel of oil equivalent per day or BOEPD essentially 
they take what the price of a barrel is and, and barrels of oil are 35 gallons, I believe, not 55. I know a lot of us envision the 55 gallon drums, but I believe they're 35. And they essentially, there's some formula to, for natural gas that they take and basically equate it to the equivalent of a barrel of oil. And so you're looking for about 12,500 uh, barrels of oil equivalent per day at peak production. So essentially once they get to that 15 to 18 well mark and they've already hit oil on well three and four, um, I believe they're on five or six uh, now. And so essentially you're, you're wanting that 12,000, I believe it's about 12,500, 12,600 barrels of oil per day at peak production. And ultimately what their goal is, is not to, just crush these wells and suck them dry. It's to basically prove, so essentially drill only about 10 to 15% of each well and basically prove to an institution that it's worth them bringing their infrastructure out to this area of land and essentially hook up the pipeline. So right now trucks are coming out and uh, you know they're trucking the oil back to the main infrastructures, back to the refineries. And they're essentially the ultimate goal is to prove that it's worth to have the pipeline. So essentially envision your head, there's a giant pipeline that they can essentially attach um, their wells to so that as oil is produced and sucked up and it's got a meter on it, it'll just go right into the pipeline and that pipeline is connected directly to uh, the refineries, which are owned by your, your larger institutional players. So it's essentially a value add deal but using science and, and proven and, and just like in real estate, you have comps. So there's land comps, you know, that surround this land that they can use and, and see what they're producing per day. And, and ultimately what will lead them to this forecast and, and feeling confident in what they can produce. Got it. Well, last question I have about this investment is, Johnny, the the world's going to renewable fuels. We're, we're going away from oil. We don't need gas anymore. Just talk us through any investor that that might be a concern for them. Yeah, and and, and you know what? It is a legitimate concern. the The biggest thing is that you need to understand about the infrastructure of how electricity is produced. Is uh, everything that's moving, uh you know, what it takes to operate these electric facilities, right? So most of them are coal-fired power plants, right? So you're talking about coal anyway to begin with. Second, you're using locomotives and uh, semi-trucks, which all operate on diesel, which ultimately uh, is a byproduct of oil. And so until we have been able to take the entire infrastructure and move it to a renewable energy source, which barring that renewable energy source being invented and created and in your house in the next three to five years, you can conservatively say we're going to have oil for the next three to five years, but you talk to any expert and, and it's at least for the next 20 years that it's going to be a necessary energy source uh, because when you break down, I'll put it into perspective, one battery that's in a Tesla car is about three to 500 barrels of oil to produce that battery. So you've got to take that into account. Um, and then yeah. you've got states like California pushing for it, but on this, you know, but also, Hey guys, don't all of you charge your Teslas at the same time. 
your electric vehicles at the same time because we'll, you know, overuse the power grid and, you know, nobody will have power. So until the entire infrastructure can go without oil, it's going to be extremely, extremely necessary. And you get down into everything, mining. I mean, we all have a cell phone at this point in our hand, right? I don't, we don't even want to get into where you're actually getting your rare earth minerals and how those are produced. But I promise once they're dug out of the earth by a 13-year-old kid in Africa, they're put on a truck which uses oil to eventually get it to where it makes it into your cell phone. So yeah. until all of that changes, and listen, I'm all for it. Like I'm all about renewable energy. I absolutely think that's where we need to head. But until that is really, really more than a goal and, and it's really laid out, it's going to be very necessary to use oil and gas. Yeah. First off, I am aligned with that. We have to figure out the renewable energy uh, problem, not necessarily so much for climate change as it is a competitive advantage to have renewable resources at your fingertips for any economy. So if nothing else, you should support renewable energy for that reason alone. The second thing I would say, though, is this pen that I'm holding in my hand right now has plastic in it. You know what plastic is made out of? A byproduct of oil. Until we get rid of um, all, all your phones have plastic in them, everything on my desk I'm looking at has some sort of plastic in it. So until we fully get off of plastic, which is impossible, I think, right now in the next 50 to 100 years, we're going to need oil at some point in the, the life cycle. Your roads, I mean, you know, you're seeing your main highways being paved with concrete, which obviously, you know, is not. But any asphalt road you're driving on, that's all petroleum based. That's right. That's oil. So, right. Well, Johnny, I want to switch us now to our last round. We're calling this yep. the four toppings. Our first one is what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Yeah, my favorite one uh, recently is uh, Principles Ray Dalio. Uh, if, if you're familiar with him, he just, uh, you know, obviously aside from creating one of the most influential private equity, um, private hedge funds to ever be created is just a very, very well-spoken, very articulate man. I relate to him so heavily and he just wrote a book on all of his principles for life and, and business. And, and I've really changed a lot of, um, my perspective on life through that book for sure. Yeah, one of my favorites for sure. Our second one is, what is your best piece of advice you've ever received? So as an entrepreneur, um, not sure how many entrepreneur listeners you have, but the biggest, best one I've gotten for as an entrepreneur is money follows speed. Um, so that's number one from uh, Hunter Thompson. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with him, Matt. Uh, so he taught me that very early on, right? Fail fast, fail forward, and just keep on moving and the, the money will follow suit. You're going to take your lumps and your losses, but ultimately, you know, if, if you're learning from those and, and you're not making the same mistakes, then, you know, you're, you're failing forward ultimately. Yeah. I uh, have this saying, I like to say it's no longer that the big eat the small it's that the fast eat the slow. Yep. Our third one is what is the thing you're most proud of in your life? Gosh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, uh, it might sound a little lame, but honestly, my dog is my most proud thing ever. Uh, I trained him myself. I'm a, I'm a hunter outdoorsman. Uh, he's very well, well trained. He just turned 10. Uh, and a lot of people have asked me to help them train their dogs. So, you know, just from YouTube, which we, you know, and this was even 10 years ago when YouTube was up and coming, you could still learn anything back then. So 
Um, I would say that's my number one, but certainly the fact that I finally became an entrepreneur, I just, I always felt that it was coming all through college and, and kind of the various jobs. And, you know, like I said earlier, the universe really pushed me over the edge with, with the COVID layoff. And I was like, okay, it's, it's time. So it's time. I love it. Our fourth and final one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Honestly, it would have to be Ray Dalio. Since principles and you know he is still alive, so it is possible. Like I have on my dream board to have sit down with him for my own podcast. So it would just be incredible. Like I said, he, I just relate to him very much because you know he says things like, "Outside of what I'm supposed to know, I'm actually pretty dumb." He like starts principles with that statement, you know, meaning like for me too. You know, obviously the questions you ask, I, I'm very knowledgeable about, but you know, you go and you ask me like even to go change my oil, like, do I know how it works? Yeah, sure. But like, you know, I'm yeah. not a mechanic. So, you know, but there are people who are incredible mechanics. Um, so that would be the biggest thing. And also, you know, he was doing psychedelics with, uh, and plant medicine with, with Steve jobs before it was called plant medicine, you know what I mean? And, and now it's kind of in the forefront and uh, it's certainly been a factor in my life in terms of helping me with things as well. So just kind of all of those things that really encompasses life and his son has, you know, dealt with mental health issues and, you know, they were getting help before mental health was at the forefront. So he's really paved a way in a lot of avenues outside of business uh, that I really relate to. Yeah. And, um, it's a fantastic book. I, I, don't, yes. I don't want to say anything more than it's a fantastic book. And I believe everyone should live their life by principles. And he does a good job of in 700 pages describing how he went from a guy um, basically on the verge of bankruptcy to building the largest private wealth company in the world. Yeah, so, and almost lost it twice along the way, yeah, too. So if you are exactly. an entrepreneur and you've lost, I mean, you look at Alex Ramosi, he lost everything twice. Like, it's just it's it's part of it, you know, and you've got to have game. perseverance. Yeah, yeah. Well, Johnny, fantastic conversation. I appreciate you coming on. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you and learn more about you or what you've got going on, where is the best place we can point them? Yeah, so if you're interested in learning more about the oil and gas deal, it is still open. It is a 506C, so available to accredited investors, um, which I'm sure you've probably talked about what constitutes that on here. Uh, so if you're interested in that, the best place is go to my website, katanicapitalgroup.com and join my list. Uh, if you join the list, you'll eventually get a call from me within the first probably couple days uh, or week or so of you joining the list. You can schedule directly as well there uh, if you want to just jump right into a call. Second best place is come listen to my podcast, The Cashflow Chronicles, um, where we talk about cash flow. So those would be the two awesome. best. We will leave both of those in the show notes. And then Johnny, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me, Matt. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.